Welcome back to the Design Show with Coffee. I'm your host Jonathan, and I'm here with my co-host Leon. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> and we have a special guest today, uh, Professor Alejandro Lozano Robledo. Uh, thank you for taking the time to come on. Thank you, guys. No, I appreciate it. I think it's a really exciting initiative that you're doing. So thank you for making me a part of it. Yeah. How How are you? Anyways. Pretty good. So we're here in Cincinnati. The fall is upon us. Uh, you basically in some places don't have any sidewalks everywhere you step its leaves. So it's kind of nice. And uh, this year is closing up pretty quickly. So we're wrapping up the fall semester soon. But yeah, all good things, you know. Yeah. And uh, we're actually recording this in a very interesting place in an interesting building. But I think we'll touch on that a little bit uh, later. Um, how about you just sort of uh, introduce yourself and say, tell the audience what, what you do and uh, who you are. What do I do? Well, uh, sometimes I don't know what I do. Many of us can relate to that. So my name is Alejandro. I've been a professor at UC for several years. I've been leading the future mobility track. When I first came here, it was called transportation design. And my background was in transportation design. But uh, Ever since I came here, we re-envisioned what the program should be. So I've been leading the Future Mobility Design Program. And a very recent initiative that you are a part of this semester is Digital Futures. So it's a brand new research building uh, at the university. And I'm leading a lab in here, which has a different purpose. It's not so much about academic studios. It's more about multidisciplinary collaborations with other disciplines, but with industry, government, so it's really meant to expose students to next level professional work. So pretty exciting new chapter. And we're currently taking our classes from here. So we're one of the first people to test it out. So you would tell me if it's working or not. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, how, how did you, maybe you can walk us through how, how you even came to sort of this career that you're in right now. Um, how did, what sort of, um, how did you even get started with, with design? I'll start with a very beginning question. And that's a very good question. How long do we have? That's, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> as long as you have time. <laughs> no, uh, so, I mean, we, we all have a, our own path. And something I, I really like to stress, you know, when we, in class, for example, when we talk about portfolio is, why are you here? We all have a reason why we're here. We're all creative in some way. We're all visual in some way. I always loved cars, for example, just grew up loving cars. And um, I even started industrial design back home in Colombia. And um, I did a year over there. But um, then with my family, we moved here and I found that there are schools that offer transportation design, specifically automotive design. So for me, that was really, really exciting, really interesting. So I ended up studying transportation, but it was basically automotive design in Michigan where the U.S. automotive industry is, so very exposed to all the big car companies, lots of sponsor studios. However, I always felt that um, there were some really exciting things about the automotive industry, but something else was missing in my, just in my interests. Luckily, I was able to do an internship halfway through my undergraduate degree with a company here in Ohio called Crown Equipment. They make they're one of the biggest worldwide manufacturers of forklifts and specialized equipment. It was a, such a great experience because in my, in my experience with them, it was really a mixture between traditional transportation, 
but industrial design, which I, I I really was missing, and it and it was a big global company that had a good balance between engineering and design. So design really had a a push in that company. So when I came back and finished my degree, I really really took that with me. Uh, I ended up coming back after graduating, and I worked with them for over almost two years. And then, yeah, long story short, I ended up meeting the director of the transportation design program at UC. And it was at a moment in my career where I was at a crossroads and and we just hit it off so well that he said, you know, you have to come here. You have to help me build this program. I had not considered teaching back then. And uh, it was a great experience because I was able to do my master's degree here as I was teaching and helping build the program. And ever since I graduated, I've been just continuing that path. But um, in my experience, I really, really enjoy industry work. So I really enjoy being able to create things that inform, you know, real projects that inform real things. So in all of my career, I've been teaching on the side and working almost part time in industry with my new role is more industry. So it's 80 percent real projects, real industry. But I, I enjoy the I've grown to enjoy the academic side too. How can you benefit your industry work, industry connections, but bring that to students and help, you know, inform the next generation designers? That's that's actually, you did quite a lot. Um, uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit on some of the sure. stuff you said, because you said quite a lot. Um, in our last episode, we, we interviewed Professor Peter Chamberlain and... Uh, he, uh, we sort of had a conversation about like design in different cultures and international design. And you mentioned that, that you started off sort of your, well, you, you're from Colombia and you started off your education in Colombia. Is that, is design a common, um, how do you say a topic or something like a career path in Colombia, or is it as you could say, not as talked about as it is in other parts of the world? Well, I think it really applies worldwide. Design is not as established as many other disciplines. So if you talk about medicine, you talk about law, these are dis architecture even, are disciplines that have hundreds, if not thousands of years of history and heritage. Design is an emerging profession in many ways. I think worldwide is growing. The same case for Colombia. I think that more and more companies are realizing the value. With my new job, I'm realizing that there is a lot of uh, misinformation. Many people don't know exactly what industrial designers do, and they don't know the value of design research, which is really important. So what we bring as designers is not only the ability to visualize, but the kind of research we do is very unique. It's about people. It's about the user-centered design. Many other disciplines do very different design. So in Colombia, for sure, it's growing, it's picking up. It's much more manufacturing-based, I, I feel, the profession. Um, but, um, yeah, being exposed to, to that for me and, and, and now being able to communicate that to other professionals, I think is, is really key. We're advocating for our value in, in, in what we do. And, um, you started off in undergrad in Colombia and then you changed to transportation design. Where did you, uh, how, where did you do your undergrad? So my undergraduate degree was in a school in Detroit, Michigan, called the College for Creative Studies. It's one of the the top transportation <laughs> design programs in the world. It's very well known for that specifically. It was a really, really great experience in many ways. 
uh, and I'm taking some of what I learned there with my practice here. The, the context of UC is very different, but it's a highly, highly specialized four-year program in which you get to learn all about transportation and automotive design with automotive companies and with professional designers who work for those companies and then teach you, you know, sp specific classes uh, when they're not in, in well at work. Have you a question about that? Have you ever considered, for example, going the traditional transportation design path as a career? Or was it, as you said, that you then drifted into the education side? So, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think in my practice, in my experience, just industry has always been the biggest component and it still is. Um, I would, I've considered being a part of the automotive industry several times. And I think in the future, that's still an, an, a possibility. However, with the work I'm doing now and what I've been interested in the past few years is how can we think about that whole industry differently? So that, that's part of the new vision for the program. Instead of designing cars that go on roads, why not think of the city itself and how we move around the city? So acknowledging, you know, the next 20 years will be very different from right now. We keep hearing about uh, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, hyper-connectivity, smart cities, all of these key words that basically mean cities are becoming more complex and we need to understand what that means. So a big part of that is thinking more at a system-based and multidisciplinary collaboration. As designers, we can focus on a specific part of the story, but other disciplines focus on a different part. As an example, my master's thesis was an exercise in which how can as a design me as a designer learn about planning the field of planning urban planning transportation planning and propose a mobility design concept but with the vision of what a planner should do which is the city big demographics so with my new job i hope to connect with automotive companies and offer some of this expertise but more at the at the systems level at the city level And um, <clears throat> between the educating and um, sort of your professional work, uh, which one do you find more fulfilling? So uh, one, one might argue that doing this future planning um, is being very fulfilling, but one could also be considered like educating student designers right now to sort of lead them down this path as being extremely fulfilling as well. So I, I'd like to hear your. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly, this might not be the answer you're looking for, but I think both are very fulfilling in very different ways. I just going back to something I said before, what I love about what I do is I am involved in real projects that have real insights from industry, but having the, education component, I'm able to bring that into the class. So with how I operate, it's really crucial to have both. There are many rewarding things about both. So let's talk about industry first. The rewarding thing about industry is you're using, you're using your skills, you're using your experience to actually inform decisions. So some of the projects I'm involved in right now are with companies and, and governments, even entities, in which they don't know what the right decision to make in terms of policy, budgeting, those things are, and I am there to help inform that. And then in education, one of the most rewarding things is the thought of what you described, the thought of the new methods, the new ideas you're bringing, 
are the ideas that many young professionals will be implementing. So that's where I find partnerships, for example, as you know, with companies such as Gravity Sketch. They're, they've been very pioneering in terms of new technologies, new workflows in design. I've been collaborating with them for several years, since 2018. And now we're, we have a partnership at the level where we're both co-creating. So basically, they not only invest in the teaching side, but we're constantly developing new features for the program. So that's where in, in my professional practice, there's a fine line between both. And I really find rewarding, you know, the educational side is, is really rewarding when you see someone's progress just completely skyrocket. If it's a, you know, someone, we all start in one level and students go to school because you want to improve your skills, you want to improve your process. But it, one of the most rewarding feelings of that is when you've, you know, fostered a process and at the end of the semester, they're somewhere completely different from where they started. And that allows them to make the next step, which is an internship, for example, or the next career path and all of that. And, you know, I've been doing this for some time and some of the students I've helped shape, now they're in working in industry and we're partnering at an industry level. So these are things that, you know, and this goes for everyone. Design, industrial design is a very small world and the connections you make will last many, many years, both in industry, academia, anywhere. Have you ever had a moment where you actually learned something from one of your students where they said something or commented on something and you were, you said like, oh, I actually didn't think of that. And you actually applied it in, in the industry or? All the time, all the time. You know, a big part of what makes us designers is we, we try to find the answers. We don't have all the answers. I try to be very open about these things. Yeah, students, all the time I learn so many things, not only skill skills specifically, but, you know, just in general. The, the benefit in this also reflects on why many times companies invest in studios and classes is because you, uh, students who are beginning their process or through, well, throughout their process, you are not bound by many, many years of the same repetition of the same method. So you can think differently. You can think, and that's a very valuable skill, which depending on where you end up, you know, once you graduate, that's something that you always have to challenge, challenge your notions, challenge what you think, you know, and uh, with students, I see that all the time. And I love that, that part of the job where you get to sit down and have a conversation with someone and, and just learn from the way that they're thinking through a problem and help them visualize the best way around that. That's very, yeah, it's very satisfactory, I think. Cool. Um, sort of, I, the alarm that sort of interrupted you was sort of signaling that um, the coffee was finished brewing. Um, cool. If so, only need some some coffee right now. Yeah. Here's so, the. Yeah. Can't push it too fast. That's such a good feeling. Pressing a, a French press down while it filters. Yeah, we actually brought our French press from home again. I feel like every episode <laughs> is just us doing French press coffee. Yes. In the beginning, we thought we would have like every episode a different sort of sound to play. So we thought like, oh, one episode could be, you know, you hear the espresso machine in the background or something. But yeah. up until now, we've only sort of used French press. No, it seems like a, a theme for an what is, what is the name of the of the ongoing series or or does it have a, a name yet? Um yeah, it's wait, hold on. 
Yes, that's a good sound. I like it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the our show is called the Design Show with Coffee. So it's like almost a, a sub topic. We we also talk a little bit about basically your two best things in life: design and coffee. Huh? <laughs> yeah, the thought. The I like thought how you think. Yeah. Some real ASMR here. That's not a sound effect for people that are hearing. That's real coffee being poured. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, the thought behind it was sort of finding a t- um, because our somehow it doesn't matter who you talk to, any designer, it doesn't matter what part of the world is sort of has this relationship with coffee because it's such an office essential and in the yeah it keeps you pushing like if it's if the evening and you have a do tomorrow and you just drink the coffee you just can power through but it, over time it's it's getting worse because lack of <laughs> sleep and on, always drinking coffee yeah, yeah so always at the end of the semester you feel uh, <laughs> you get so much you got so much older so the for the listeners uh, today we're drinking lavazza Premium house blend, medium roast. Um, sort of just picked it up in the supermarket. This here. time, no espresso coffee. Yeah, last time we we messed up with Peter. <laughs> we accidentally gave him. Uh, we accidentally made espresso in the French press, and it was way too strong. That was hard. That's a very good problem to have in in my book. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how Peter likes his coffee. Are, are you are you a big coffee drinker or? I think I think I'm required by by nationality to be so yes. Do you? I I didn't want to ask this question before, but do you? Is your favorite coffee or like? Do you drink a lot of Colombian coffee or? I'm required by nationality to okay. say yes. <laughs> no, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. It, especially my family. You know, my dad drinks. I can't even tell you how many cups of coffee a day. <laughs> I try to. My rule is after three usually. Like I try to stop unless there's an event or something like that. But um. But yeah, like you said, there's so much access and we, what we do in design it, like coffee is such a big part of it that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it comes with, with the territory, coffee and good ideas. Hopefully we'll see. Do you, do you sometimes feel like you have, um, do you sometimes still feel like a student? Because I know that like the, a lot of ID or other design students, they basically work a lot, drink a lot of coffee into the night. And does that sort of translate over into your life now? Do you sometimes still feel like a student? I think you'll realize when you graduate that you will take many habits you develop with you. I mean, the lifestyle changes, um, depending on the the industry you work in, the, the country even, it might have different lifestyle elements, but um, many habits you pick up, you continue for sure. So coffee can be one of them. Uh, yeah. So going back to my experience, if you develop good habits in moments that are very stressful, like in school, when you have 20 projects due, but you're still getting some sleep or you're making some time to chat with friends or to exercise, if you make time for things like that when you're very, very busy, then when you're not, those will be easier to find. So those critical years of school, if you keep you know, yourself on check, you'll, you'll be pretty good when you graduate. Some students, and you see all kinds of, of examples, you know, I have classmates who, who really pushed very, very hard in their undergraduate degree. And once they graduated, they finally had time to just settle and, you know, take care of themselves. But 
Yeah, it's trying to find balance, I think, with everything. Design is one of those professions where you don't have an expected outcome. I wish many of, of the times I could just sit down in my own projects or in student projects and say, you know, you have to do A, B, and C. This is the exam, 10 questions, half an hour. That's not how we work, which is good. And, and it also has its downsides. You can put as much time as you want in a project. It will always have a deadline, but yeah, you become better at judging when and how to do that, basically. Personally, you think that, that the thing that you don't have A, B, C as an answer because it's really nice and I really like it because I was never the person for doing those mm -hmm. tests. I was more like, I do my work and I can do my progress and I can do it freely. So that's why I really like, yeah, it really went well with me in design. Absolutely. You don't have to write tests. Of course, you have sometimes to write tests, but mostly it's managing your work and also work-life balance is a big thing, which is not doing well with me, but uh, <laughs> I think that's a big challenge to uh, manage that. But as you already said in the beginning, uh, we are right now in a really special building where actually coffee is not so available, easy available for us. <laughs> I know, yeah. Could you maybe talk a bit more about uh, your work at the Digital Futures and what are you doing for UC in Digital yeah. Futures? Sure, sure. So like I said at the beginning, it's a brand new chapter and I'm really glad you guys came this semester because you basically opened the building. And you're, you're the class, I can guarantee you are the class that you see that's making the most out of this. We're one of the very few classes currently happening in this building, but in the way we're using it, I think we're, one, we're really leading the way, you know, in, in what this building can do. So what it is, is a multidisciplinary research building. Many universities have multidisciplinary buildings. The main difference between UCs and some other universities is really the scale of how multidisciplinary it is. If you go to other universities such as MIT, for example, and I'm not just saying this, I'm repeating what I've heard from conversations I've had with industry, with some companies that I'm connecting with. They've said, you know, when, when they go to places like MIT, they, they find a very specific expertise. It's a building full of very highly capable people, but uh, on a very specific field, like very technical, for example. But here at Digital Futures, you're putting together aerospace engineers with industrial designers, with biomechanical engineering, uh, people, crypto economics, uh, cybersecurity, psychology, urban planning, um, art education. So th these are very, very broad fields. And the ambition for UC with this building is that in the next 10 years, we become what they call a tier one research university. So at the same level as you would find Harvard, Stanford, these kinds of universities. And this is a very big push of course, the expectations are very high, but in my job, like I said before, I've always enjoyed the industry and academia side. I think both in my experience go really well with one another. And I, I would feel like I'm missing something if I weren't doing both. My new job is to lead a multidisciplinary lab, essentially as a consultancy. So I run, a I had to establish a brand new lab, find partnerships with industry, find partners with government, and basically bring students not so much as students, but as as co-ops, basically, as interns. So I currently have two master's students working at the lab with me, helping support research. And a, a big part of that push is elevating design, industrial design and design research to the level of credibility that it should have. Many times other disciplines are not exposed to what we can do. But as an example, we recently submitted 
a proposal for a multi-million dollar grant with the U.S. Department of Transportation for five years, in which the theme, it's going to get a bit more technical, but the theme is artificial intelligence and human communication in autonomous cars. So what will that look like a future 10, 20 years from now when the car is driving itself? You are a human passenger. When should you intervene and what is that communication of decision making? It's led by a highly, highly specialized team of engineers focusing on artificial intelligence. But now that I'm involved in that initiative, it will have a human research component. It will have ergonomics. It will have UX, UI. It will have so th those are the kinds of am ambitions in here. And we're elevating our profession to a national grant level. I'm working with my team on submitting academic papers for different conferences, uh, applying for, for really respected events. And, and we're already achieving some of that. But um, that's part of the ambition of UC. We rarely get those kinds of opportunities as designers. But if you look at other fields, the, the expectation is you're constantly winning grants you're constantly uh, participating in you know in in academic papers if you're in industry it's a little bit different but um depending on where you want to go we can talk about both expectations or graduate design for example i uh, sort of as you climbed your the the ladder in your career right um you've shown us some of your some of your work on behance and stuff how how do you how much do you find yourself still designing in your actual position or is it more talking politics sort of going to like paperwork or do you still design i mean i i love design i think in one way or another i would i'll always want to do that but it the priorities shift and change i think the same is in industry what well, you will be if you're a entry-level designer junior designer even senior designer you will be creating and using your skills. But the more and more you climb that ladder in industry and with what I'm doing, the more your priorities shift away from executing in your skills and more administrative. So a design manager in any company, what they do is they administer, they lead, they manage conversations. They don't necessarily design as much. It's very unusual for a design manager to do that. Because of the nature of the job I have right now, I had to set up a brand new lab from the ground up. I had no basis for anything for it. That means most of what I've done so far is very, very administrative. The goal is once we establish the foundation and we start having some recurring projects, especially with industry, then my team and I could be co-creating design. For me, that's always important, depending on what you end up doing in your careers. Many times what you see is design managers end up going on the business route and they end up having, for example, going for an MBA, a business master's degree, because that's a good partnership for managing. But you also see very, you know, seasoned designers who have been in industry for decades who never wanted to be managers and they stay at the senior level where they can keep designing. The problem with our discipline, as you know, is skills change all the time. The philosophy is the same. We specialize in a process. And that's something I've been saying a lot. I've spoken at a couple events recently, and that's one of the main takeaways for process. We specialize in process. The skills will change and it's important to keep current. But what we offer is a process that is very valuable and that process offers opportunities, ideas. Many other disciplines are much more empirical where A plus B equals C. For us, 
a bit more chaotic, but that's what we bring, and that's the only way to innovate. Um, sort of to uh, go back on some of the stuff you you talked about and thinking about, you know, the you're a professor at a university. Um, also, the stuff you're doing in the industry. Would you would you exclusively identify yourself as a mobility or transportation designer, or do do you see yourself because you primarily teach in in the industrial design section, but now you're also in the industry, you're doing a lot of like urban planning. Uh, how would you how would you label yourself right now? That's a very good question. I think more than anything, I more than anything, I would say design researcher. Researcher covers so much more, and my my position, my title is research associate. And in some ways, I like the sound of that because the name itself gives more credibility. Design research is such an important component. We have it in industrial design, and it's its own field. You can be a design researcher, but uh, for example, just not to go on a tangent, graduate school, if you study a master's of design in research, that's exactly what you specialize in. So the master's of design program at UC is very research focused. And that is the the goal. So at, at an undergraduate level, we we try to, I mean, research will always be important, but we scratch the surface, really. So if, if you were very interested in the front end of any project you've ever done, the research phase, then that's where a master's degree could help you go even deeper. And even a PhD, which we have PhDs in design now, it's just different aspects of the story. But um, But yeah, I would categorize myself as design researcher and my traditional expertise has been in mobility transportation but again we specialize in process so i mean i could go on and on about very different kinds of projects i've done that have nothing to do with mobility just one example right now we're with my lab my lab is called future mobility design but we are supporting um, another grant a multi-million dollar grant from another researcher from uh, the environmental engineering program her her proposal is on digitizing the water infrastructure of the state of Ohio. That has nothing to do with mobility, but design research in our process and what we implement is a valuable skill that she doesn't have. I've also worked in healthcare and you know I've done many different projects. And the one constant is the process we know really well. That is what's most valuable. The skills you can apply as well, but. Um, yeah, you'll see that especially if you work for consultancies and companies like that, the what you design is not as important as the how you design it. I think especially learning the process as an industrial designer, we also found out that we can put our skill in doing process stuff and analyzing, doing research. It's really helpful for normal life as well for other disciplines. So we are much more organized. We, we come up with a plan. We execute the plan really strategically. So I think studying industrial design really helped us to grow our personality and also make ourselves um, capable to learn new stuff really easily because we just yeah. think, okay, do the research, then we do quick ideation, and then we refine our skills. So That's, that's interesting. Well, I'm actually really curious. Do you have an example from your experience where that happened? Because I think we all have where you realize, oh, this thing I've learned is changing how I think about this. So can you think of anything? I would say maybe, uh, for example, 
writing texts or writing uh, called essays. Like essays. Mm. Uh, after after I studied industrial design, it's a bit more about planning and doing the research and then laying everything out. So True. much more strategically. And in the past, it was more like okay, just write, and then I figure out it on the way. So this is one example, or maybe also organizing maybe private projects. For example, uh, I like to do in my private time some fun projects. Cat or uh, drawing, and then I do before that, I do a bit of research. So what I'm doing is actually, you know, it's feasible and it's mm -hmm. it's actually working. So I look up for components for okay, this has to be this dimension to work. So overall, we just think a bit more realistically and just really nice. I yeah. think I think on the other side of the spectrum is um, some people sort of go through this experience in design where they have this great idea and they sort of start ideating and coming jumping into CAD and in the end they have this finished design but then realize or somebody somebody else tells them oh this it's exactly like this product it already exists and if people would have done their research beforehand they would have known that they're basically already doing something that exists and maybe the thing that exists is already more function functionally better than the thing that they designed. So I, I feel like we, there are a lot of moments like that, especially as a student, right? And also, because you do the research, you learn out so much about new technologies. For example, I remember in the past when I was first time looking, finding the internet virtuality, I was, wow, I want that. But I, because I didn't do my research, I didn't know that you actually only need a device to work in VR. I thought you need a dedicated computer equipment so I've done the research more carefully and look deeper. I would maybe have already been in contact with VR, but definitely also industrial design is um, looking for new technologies and to think about, okay, how can maybe I improve, uh, solve a problem and not look directly at the current products, maybe think, or oh, what is maybe in the nature or space, uh, space traveling maybe i can find their components and transfer it so i think just more open wide like open-minded overall mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah everything you just said is what design thinking is which is approaching a problem more from the outside there are so many great examples you know of use cases for design thinking one that i love to share well since it's so close to the kind of work that i do with mobility is you know many cities around the world are experiencing pollution issues, right? Many cars are driving into the cities. It, it's a big problem. It's a health problem, pollution. What happened in Seoul, in South Korea, was they were having the same issue. They were having lots of pollution happening. They looked at other cities around the world, New York, London. What these cities were doing were was that they were taxing people. So to drive into the city, you have to pay. So it's basically punishing. The, the way those cities are treating the issue is there's pollution, let's punish you. So there's maybe less pollution in the future. That's a reasonable thought process, but it's not a design thinking process. So what researchers in Seoul decided to test is understand the motivations of people. So rather than punishing people for driving into the city, what they did was they made public transportation free and they tested it and to see what happens. And guess what? Less people started driving, more people started using public transportation. People were happy. So it's an example of approaching the issue of pollution, but from the outside, rather than attacking the issue directly, 
you can think of the system of what what's the reason why people are doing these things. How can we approach it that way? There are so, so many examples, and that is what design thinking is, design research in many ways. It's and in our in our projects in this in the class, we were doing that too, finding analogies in other places. If you're designing a particular product and you're just looking at that industry, you won't innovate ever. It will look exactly like the products you've already seen. It will do exactly what the products that already exist are doing. But if you really go outside and find analogies on a similar experience, maybe in the healthcare industry, maybe in the hospitality industry, maybe there are innovations that Disney are doing in their cruises around the Caribbean that can help me understand why people love smartwatches. Very different analogies. Those are the kinds of things that we bring in design that are how we innovate. And that, that to me, the, the ability to think abstractly and to think in analogies is really crucial. And just going back to what you said, that's a skill that we learned that maybe you apply in your daily life. Like, no, let's think about this differently. And maybe you come up with something that you wouldn't expect. Yes. Um, going back to transportation design, um, do you think there's some serious emerging trends for transportation design, so new technologies or new ways of thinking, which are innovating or hitting the industry? So, yes, of course, of course. I think the next 10, 20 years, that's something I keep saying and referencing in many conversations I'm having. The We're currently experiencing one of the most disruptive times in the past 100 years in terms of cities and mobility. The main reason why is how interconnected everything is becoming. So right now, most of us have multiple IoT devices, devices that communicate with the internet, smart devices. Most people have at least one, many people have multiple that they carry. So in many ways we're connected. The next 10, 20 years is exponentially growing that we're expecting on-demand connectivity, we're expecting you know, much more information. One paradigm that I'm really interested in specifically is the idea of a shared economy. What that means is in the same way that we now subscribe to Spotify and Netflix for our services, we don't pay for the app, we subscribe to it. Mobility will be a subscription service in the future. So we might not own cars in the future. We might subscribe to a, an ecosystem of solutions that we use depending on what we need in the same way we rent a scooter or a bike in the downtown of most global cities. And that's, that changes everything. I'm having some conversations with some automotive companies right now on, they want to know what that means. They don't know what that means. They have to shift their model completely. So what we might see in the next decades is a company such as BMW, they might not sell you a car. They might sell mobility services to the city so as, as an example, Munich. Munich might pair up with BMW to have mobility services and BMW in the city of Munich offer those services to people who pay a su subscription for them. And then you add the layer of autonomy. Maybe those are not even driven by you anymore. What that opens up is lots of opportunities for accessibility. People who currently don't have access to the city, maybe they're wheelchair bound, maybe they have cognitive problems, they can't see properly, they can't hear properly. The idea of having an autonomous solution that picks you up and takes you where you need to go is also independence. It's also freedom. And I mean, this is a whole trend, but also 
just going back, I mean, this is not a modern trend, but access to transportation equals access to opportunity. If you want to solve very complex problems in cities, you really have to start thinking about mobility differently. And Europe is one of the best examples of that. People-centric cities. Many, many cities in Europe are very much designed around the local neighborhood. That is not the paradigm in the US for all the reasons I can talk about if you want me to, but those are things that we are trying to change. How can you foster a local neighborhood where people can walk where they need to go and they have different solutions, multimodal solutions when they need them, but cars are not the norm. People are the norm. How can you design people, well, cities for people and not for cars? Um, it's interesting that you say that though, because I feel like being part of this, the world is right now in this stage where we're, where society is very consumer centric and people like owning things and people like doing things. Um, how, how do you say that development is going to happen? The one that you just described when people still want to own a Porsche, right? Um, is there... Or is that not the right now the part of society that you're tackling? Um, I think all of the above will be possible. So in the, I mean, we keep talking about the autonomy that most cars 20 years or something from now will be not driven by people. There will always be people that would want to drive. There will always be people that want to own cars. What Going back to priorities, that proportion of the population might shift and become smaller. Maybe in the future, when you really, really want to drive a very powerful car, it's a unique novel experience that you go to a specific place and you do that, whereas now it's much more accessible. So, I mean, if there's the demand for it, there will always be someone making that experience. But uh, we really have to, I guess a big point here is just because we can doesn't mean we should. So we keep hearing about Hyperloop and many new systems just because we could do it doesn't mean we should, or maybe we should think of the proper way of doing it. Same with autonomous cars. Just because the technology might be here doesn't mean it should solve everything. Not, not on the contrary. Some of the you know rabbit holes in research that I go through, especially following many researchers in Europe, so in the Netherlands, there's one, there's one that I follow a lot. It's on the contrary. The, the way to fix our cities in the future is to use much less technology and go back to what we've been doing for millennia, which is small neighborhoods, small walkable cities, super blocks, that it's kind of an interesting paradox that we're getting more complex, but we should go back in some ways. There's also, I also see with my younger brother that many young people, they don't even have the motivation to own a driver license or to own a car. It's more about where I can just use public transportation or for example, Uber. So I think there's also happening a shifting in the society of, okay, I just take public transportation, Uber, or for example, Lime uh, scooters. Mm -hmm. So I think, for example, for me, it was always the biggest thing to have a driver license to get out of, mm -hmm. to get uh, away from home, drive around. But now it's kind of like shifting. So they just use public transportation. So maybe we see in the future that having an own car is like not anymore the normal thing. It's just having the subscription model, for example. To get around city so but um what what would you say not not to get too philosophical now but our <laughs> again if you want we have coffee so we can do it if you want to. yeah um how, how would you say our role as the designer will will change because right now you know it's sort of our 
part of our profession to design these, especially in the transportation sec- sector. Mm-hmm. You're designing new vehicles. Basically, these these car companies, these brands keep on releasing new car models every year. How is that going to change when society shifts to this model that you're talking about? Are less models going to come out? Is it because it's less consumer driven? Or how will the role of the designer sort of shift in, in that? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. I think that, well, just going back to demand, when there, as long as there's demand, the companies will make things. The big reason why the U.S. makes so many big, big pickup trucks is because people want them in here. So that's, that's an example of it. I think that, yeah, the, it, it really depends on where things might go. Um, at least with some of my colleagues, what we're talking about is, you know, right now we're in a, in a speaking of mobility, we're in a reality where 90% or more than 90% of the cars are driven by people. Just a few cars have some autonomous capabilities. We know Teslas or self-driving in some cases. And we're talking about a future 20 years from now where the paradigm shifts. Some 90% of the cars are not driven by people, only a few. The really complex problem is the in-between. How do we go from one to the other? A, a future where most cars are autonomous? It's a very predictable future where every vehicle communicates with itself, smart cities, internet of things, everything is, I mean, the, what the promise is, accidents will be completely, completely eradicated because everything is connected. However, the in-between moment is the biggest complexity. How do we start transitioning to a reality where some are, but some aren't? It's a very chaotic thing. But going back to what you said of companies, um, I think that we will probably start seeing more general looking vehicles because they're supposed to serve different purposes, but more customizability in those vehicles. So when you request your service, you have Think of Spotify, think of the subscription services you have. You have your own profile, you have your own preferences. When you request a vehicle in the future, it will know your preferences. So it might have some capabilities of having the right temperature, the right music already for you, the the right lighting. Maybe the seats can configure in some way. So it's very much tailored to you. And since we're talking about an augmented future, um, it might already greet you by name. So when the car approaches you, it greets you by name, it projects on the floor. So these are very realistic things that we can, that are possible today in many ways, but we're adding the layer of now they might be self-driving. So I think this idea of customizability is where companies can really, really own the next generation of mobility, which is interesting because in many ways we're talking about software, not hardware. The cars, the physicality of cars will probably remain in some ways. You might see new configurations, especially if people are not driving them, they might face each other and things like that. But the element of customizability is what people will pray will pay for. And you might see same as you see with many services, the basic service, the premium service, the pro service. Um, think about how that might affect other ecosystems, not just mobility, but your social profile might dictate access to everything. I mean, we see that in China a lot where you have a social score even and the decisions you make out in public affect your access to healthcare, education. So it's kind of a paradox. And it, if you've seen Black Mirror, the show, technology has a, a, always a negative side. But taking a few steps back to something you said is what is our role as designers? We are the bridge between disciplines. That's something I heard from 
a mentor many years ago. Our role is to be that bridge between disciplines because what we focus on is questioning why. So what is the role of designers to question why? Engineers can help us figure out the what and how it does it. But a big skill you should always have is, okay, this sounds great, but why? Or why not this way? You know, just question, questioning things is such a val- it's such a simple but valuable thing, especially as you keep going. And I'm going to jump back to just what you said like two sentences ago. Imagine sort of the way the industry is going to try and profit off of these different subscription plans. Imagine you have to watch an advertisement before you enter a vehicle every time because you're not subscribed to the premium features. That would be horrible. <laughs> but it could be something, for example, also in Black Mirror, there's those uh, really harsh episodes where you're just getting constantly advertisement. So maybe it's something you can have to uh, face when you don't subscribe to the premium model. Some people might. So if you've seen the movie Minority Report many years ago with Tom Cruise, that's kind of the the reality that they face. I can't give many details because it's a project under NDA um, that I worked with Boeing uh, some semesters ago, but that's a very real possibility. How can airlines create a whole new model, much lower cost model for travelers that don't care being bombarded with advertisements? Some people, some people might not. I mean, if you're a budget traveler, you're carrying your backpack, you're just you just want to get to your destination, you might be okay with your screen on the plane constantly, like sharing those kinds of things. But yeah, it's about balance and it's about ethics. So when and how should you do that? But we already experience targeted ads all the time. That can only get even more specific. Actually, well, speaking of Black Mirror, one friend of mine showed me some, I think like a year ago, that you can Google, well, the redundancy, you can Google your Google profile of yourself. It's pretty scary what it knows about you. There's a way you can find out what Google it's knows. It's crazy. I have to do it later. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know what Google yeah. knows about me. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's pretty freaky. Um, would, you, would you say that... Um, do, you, do you think there's going to be... Uh, now I'm getting really f- philosophical, but... We can take it anywhere. <laughs> up to you. Um, do you think... You know, as a designer, also in design school, we learn a lot about ethics and dis- different philosophies in design. Do you think there, in the future, also for companies, there will be, have to be some sort of monitoring of, um, you know, the designers to make sure that we follow certain ethics and not become total sellouts, for example, for ex- example, selling information and sort of because imagine these the few what you described with these vehicles they they're collecting data and the unethical part would be for example if google knew your entire the way you were going around the city so and this is partially also like the designer that's developing that knows that it's collecting this data so do you think there will have to be some sort of monitoring of the designers to make sure so Yes, I mean, many of the things you said are already happening, but uh, for sure, monitoring of you as a designer who are in charge of some decisions that could be made, we have an ethical responsibility, but also we have to take that a couple of tiers higher. You know, entities, governments should really step in 
and do things. One of the best examples I can think of is Germany. So Germany does not have Google Street View because the government decided we don't want our streets to be public. I think it's the only country, except probably for North Korea, that doesn't have Google Street View. That's such a powerful statement. Is Google Street View the way you can drop the little person? Because actually you can do it in Germany. Now, but maybe, so I think it started as a federal, like as a government thing, and some cities might have opted in favor of it. But for a long, long time, it was a very controversial thing in a very good way because a whole government opposed a global company like Google and they were not allowed. And, and, and just because of censorship is, is really highly regulated. And that's an example of ent higher entities making decisions to protect information or access to information. So the European Union in general is very good at internet blocking, for example, just what, what kind of information are companies getting from you and uh, which is not what these companies want. They profit from data. But um, we as designers have the power to, if you're involved in a project that you are aware of these factors, you can really inform how they might, they might develop. I mean, we have an, we have, we're one, person but if you get enough people on board or convince the right people that's where decisions can truly change but it takes it takes a lot of effort i can i can sort of imagine that being in your your specific job you probably have a, uh, to have a, a lot of communication with the governments um are you, are you allowed to mention like Uh, to to what extent they're reaching out to you about or um, is it just like on the city planning level or is it also these technologies like we mentioned before sort of on that i think it's both well our going back to designers our expertise were one of the few few disciplines that can truly inform the future that sounds really conceptual but it, it's true so we are one of the few disciplines that have the expertise of doing market and trend research and forecasting that research in the future. So we know, or more or less, we know what today looks like. We can research today fairly well, but we have no idea what five years, 10 years, 15 years from now look like. In my process, I usually use certain methods that can help you map out scenarios, but the future can be one of a million different scenarios. So with design research, We have the expertise of making a very informed decision on what the most possible scenario is and making decisions off of that. So going back to informing decision-making, that's an expertise I've been advocating, you know, in, in my new job and people are starting to realize, yeah, okay, yeah, it seems like this could be valuable. But again, we're just one small part of the puzzle. Going back to design, I have some hands-on experience in working with uh, automotive companies, for example, Ford in uh, Cologne. How did the technology and emerging trends change over the time for the transportation industry? Have you seen some crazy transformation? For example, I, when I was back in, uh, in at Ford, they started talking about virtuality a bit and it was back 2016. So what kind of emerging, emerging trends or um yeah sure Happens. so the big and like i was saying before right now is the most disruptive moment in the past 100 years the reason why is you know the the car was invented at the end of the 1800s the first car was in 1896 a mercedes-benz then the ford model t 
So basically very, very stable paradigm. Cars went on roads, trains went on rails, airplanes flew on the sky. Nothing had changed. The lane on the highway was the same width. People were facing frontward. But now we're talking about a very different paradigm where, for example, autonomy is one of the biggest. Artificial intelligence is another big one. Basically, what we're saying is as humans, we're letting go of our decision making. We're letting something else make decisions for us because we want to focus on something else. That is completely changing all of these industries because now it's a whole new paradigm. You can do so much more within a vehicle. And then you add new technologies such as electrification. Uh, you know, sustainability is such a big push nowadays. And it's a big selling force. You know, when many people buy cars, they're looking at emissions. They're looking at, and in the next 10 years, more and more people will buy electric cars. So for us and for those kinds of companies, they're really trying to understand what the future consumer will expect. And especially at the school level, at the education level, we have the freedom to to be a little bit more open about what those could do. So that's where in class, I promote projects where you find a really exciting opportunity or activity and you figure out a way where it makes sense to offer that experience as you move from A to B. So kind of, you know, going full circle back, the reason why I love this balance of academia and industry and what I'm doing right now is because I have the most freedom I can to implement my own vision. If I were working only in industry, well, I would have a very specific client, very specific budget, very specific needs. If I were just teaching, then yeah, sure, we can do really exciting things in projects, but unless there's the right partnership, we can inform decisions. With what I'm doing now, I have the freedom and the openness of academia and academic research that you can truly push for your own vision, but having the industry, government, and all of those connections where you can try to bridge both. But again, I mean, we really don't have the answers. I think you guys will be a big part of that vision for where we should go. And we should really, really keep pushing for that. To sort of uh, expand this question that, that Leon asked, um, the, the tools that we use as designers uh, right now, for example, we're using virtual reality. And, you know, you, you have the advantage that, that you're in this facility with the newest uh, technologies. Um, what sort of what sort of tools do you see for us emerging within the next years that that would change the way that we're we're designing? Uh, do you have you seen anything that recently that might still be very conceptual, but it's going to change the way that we're designing? Uh, are you allowed to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can talk about it. Um, you know, so a big part of the method that I've been helping Gravity Sketch to develop is this idea of what I've called multi-level prototyping, that we use different methods at different times. So you mock up in physical space, in low fidelity, the kind of vehicle in this case that you're designing. You can sit down, you can tape up the floor. You've seen it in the lab. That's, that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. But then you put on the VR headset and while you're sitting and feeling and touching all the touch points, you're creating and overlaying what you can feel, but in VR, you're actually adding more information and iterating from it. The next layer from that is headsets now have cameras. So now it's an AR device. So you can see your surroundings, you can feel your surroundings, but you can add a digital overlay off of that. So your question of what is the next level from that? So all of that is now possible now. I'm actually, well, thinking of, uh, we're writing an academic paper now with Gravity Sketch on, on that, a case study 
and no one has published them because that's a very specific thing we're doing right here. Uh, the next level from that is haptics. So you see some development on some sensor gloves or suits that respond to touch when there's nothing in there. So let's say in my VR model, I have a, a steering wheel in front of me in VR. It's not a physical one, but then I'm, all, I'm not just wearing my controllers and my headset. I'm also wearing a whole suit or, a, or some haptic gloves that vibrate when there's an obstacle or they can change weight even. So there's some good research and some companies are investing a lot in that. So the next generation of what we are doing is a virtual environment that has physical um, behavior, physical manifestations that any obstacle you can feel. Think of a future where you can grab something and it feels like you're grabbing something. Maybe the weight of what you're wearing changes. There's good research in that. Another side of that story is projection technologies. I mean, we've seen sci-fi movies with holograms and things like that. There's some research already on that. Many high-end cars today have that. So if you look at, at a brand new BMW 7 Series, it projects on the glass your speed. And some high-end cars do that today. The next level from that is a whole fully immersive space where you're not wearing absolutely anything, but everything around the space projects this reality that's a question, you know, that I, I brought up in, in a conference recently, which is, it was with some other experts in that area. And that's what we were saying, that the next five, 10 years of VR, AR development will be reducing and reducing and reducing the size of the device you have to wear. There will be a point where you might just be wearing some contact lenses that do exactly the same. There might be a point where you're not wearing anything and there's something about the space itself that enhances that. I think sci-fi is probably sci-fi movies are a great source of inspiration because in many ways we're getting close in terms of the technologies. Do you, do you think the development of VR is going to sort of kill this fear that people have of VR? Because right now, um, especially myself included, I'm not so comfortable about spending so much time in a virtual world, right? Um, the current state of how virtual reality is now these goggles, they sort of put you into this fake virtual world and you're sort of isolated and cut off from your surroundings. But like you mentioned, the development is going that it's, it's going into augmented reality and then it's going even further into, into what you mentioned, like rooms that are projecting. Do you think this development will sort of kill this fear that people or this nervousness that people have with virtual reality? Probably so, at least the intimidation aspect. So I've been working in VR for many years and I've hosted people in VR who haven't tried VR before many times. So time and time again, I've seen that people who have never tried it are very hesitant to put something on. And there's also a social factor. They don't want to you know, embarrass themselves in front of other people. AR is a very good bridge because... And I've done many presentations like this with industry where you give them an iPad, you give them a phone, and they're walking around holding something that they're comfortable with, but they're experiencing an additional layer from it. You were bringing kind of a, like a black mirror side of the story, which is overlaying a whole reality and how much time we're spending on this. I mean, that uh, as long as there's an opportunity to make money off of it, companies will. The metaverse is a big, big example of that. Facebook is investing billions of dollars creating this digital world where people buy things. It's a market. It's an ecosystem. It can get pretty dangerous. But uh, 
you know, the challenge question I ask is how is that different from today with social media? It might not cover your entire view, but you mentally are only in that space for a very long time. So what, what do you think like in terms of that? Do you have, have also a different spin on that? Because I personally think that the clear cut between VR and real life, which is by putting on the goggles, is actually keeping you away from losing the control of being a um like being uh transforming into one for example if you have glasses on and you can be always constantly in vr or in ar you lose the 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 um what's called you lose the feeling of okay now i'm actually in ar or vr so reality yeah, yeah lose the reality control of reality and then i think this is much as this is for me much I have fear, then having it as a tool, you put it on and you know, okay, right now I'm in that space and I take it off. Okay, I'm back in real life because I think there's also a bit of Black Mirror again, the nice theory, um, that if you, you lose the, the control of it and we don't even realize we're in VR or AR, I think this is much more dangerous than having the knowledge of, okay, I took it off, now I'm good to go because if you're in this space, probably people can control you so they can see through your eyes, they can see your data. So basically they know exactly what you're doing. And then we, I guess, getting really philosophical, but then they can change how you see the environment to maybe, you know, buy something or go to a city trip because you see stuff which you normally wouldn't see. So I think. Sure, sure. The one thing I would say to add on to that is, I've said that many times before, probably in class, the tool has no value itself. A VR headset has no value at all. The value is in the application. So, of course, those applications can be exploited by many people and many companies, but it can also be very used for good in many ways. So I've been a part of some projects. Uh, I think, well, I can actually speak about this one because it came out recently. But um, with COVID, the healthcare industry was experiencing, you know, very, very bad time. And within the healthcare industry, there's the caregiver industry where professional people are trained to train family members whose relative has had, you know, a stroke or now as a family member, you have to provide care for someone in your house. So there are people that are trained to go and help you understand what that means. Well, with the pandemic, there was a shortage of caregivers, shortage of resources. So what we did was using VR as a platform, not in this case, Gravity Sketch, but game engines. So we built a whole simulation experience in Unreal Engine in which there were uh, caregiver training scenarios. So the idea was this happened to you in your life and now you have to provide care for your family member. They don't have the infrastructure to send somebody but they can send a headset with very clear instructions. And we built five different modules that help you understand what, uh, I mean, some of them had to do with medicine management. Some had to do with um, how to transition from one, someone from a hallucination, someone who has schizophrenia. How can you help them when they're having an episode? How to help someone off a wheelchair? So we created this these very good modules. And uh, recently they won the, this app that we designed with another company. It won an, an award in the healthcare industry because many, many people are starting to see the value and they have been using it. So real caregivers are using it to improve their caregiving 
but users and actual stakeholders are using it now. And in some ways, you know, it's a platform that can expand, but it's an example of finding the value within the technology is what's most important. Gravity Sketch can be, going back to Gravity Sketch, can be a fun, creative tool, but it's just a tool. It has no value by itself. The how we use it and how it informs you being a better designer, creating better designs, quicker, faster, more effectively, that is value. And companies might value that too. To sort of bring this to a like a consumer um, thought, do you think that virtual reality is uh, sort of the successor of the smartphone? Do you think that, because I've heard a lot of different perspectives on this, and I heard recently a different podcast with, for example, do you, do you know Marquise Brownlee? The, the yes, yes, YouTube? so you follow him on YouTube, yes. Yeah, sure. so he, he's talking, so they think that it's going to be the replacement for the smartphone. Um, from a design researcher point of view, do you see that happening? Uh, sort of the shift away from this handheld device to something that we're wearing? I think it's a very likely, I mean, going back to the future, we don't know what the future is like. And some technologies back, you know, 10, 20 years from now that people thought they were going to take over the world, they didn't. And the contrary is true. There were some, so many predictions. Recently, I read, uh, I can't remember his name, but he won the Nobel Prize for Economics, a researcher. He predicted the internet was going to be a flux for so a few years before it really picked up. A Nobel, a Nobel Prize winner said this will not be a thing. And a few years later, changed our world, right? So it's really hard to tell. I think there's a big, big trend in augmenting our reality. If you look at the exponential curve of how cell phones, well, phones became cell phones, which then became smartphones, which now became the, the phones we know today. If you keep going off of that curve, probably augmented devices fall into that. I mean, we're already experiencing that. Our phones are in many ways our extensions of our reality. We rely on them so much. We, they keep all of our information that we know. They keep our passwords. I mean, who, who remembers phone numbers anymore, right? Those kinds of things. Your smartwatches too. So they, in some ways, are already aug augmenting what we do. The next level from that is maybe you don't have to hold it anymore. Well, a smartwatch, you don't have to hold anymore. It's much more convenient. So we're talking about these increasing overlays of information. I don't think everybody will jump on that in the same way. Not everyone has a smartwatch, for example. Not everyone thinks smartphones are becoming more and more and more the norm. Smartwatches probably fall into that category. Some people don't want to have that. I've, you know, that, that, that's kind of the thing. But uh, if you think about it, really what we're talking about is augmenting, enhancing our own biology through technology. There's a, going back to philosophy, there's a whole philosophical current called techno sapiens. The next, the evolution of homo sapiens, which we've been experiencing for a very long time, is tools are evolving us in the same way that we evolved tools. And then if we keep going farther than that, we're talking about bio hacking our own system. So using biology and, and genetics and the DNA itself to enhance our own anatomy. That's already beginning to be possible. Think about 50 years from now where you can bioengineer your kid or something like that. Imagine, <laughs> imagine the ethical implications of that. You could have a whole new kind of human race that discriminates on people who are not enhanced because they can't afford doing that. So it has so, so many implications. 
but we're currently experiencing techno sapiens. We rely so much on our own inventions, our own technology that I would challenge, you know, how long could we last a month off grid with no device whatsoever? Many people would struggle or would 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 not know how what to do with themselves. Are, are these thoughts that you sort of keep yourself busy with? Like do you think <laughs> is this is are these um sort of these thoughts are is this a reality for you as a design researcher or do you not think that far ahead in general i mean this is probably me but i i always try to be as just inquisitive as possible i think that's probably a trait that many of us it, we we fall into design because we're curious that's something i really really value about my experiences the more you know, the more questions you ask, the more you can challenge ideas. And going back to analogies, I mean, we're already talking about things that are very much outside of specifically industrial design, but in many ways, they affect exactly what we are doing. We're designing more and more things that go out into the world. How are they affecting this bigger picture? So yeah, I do keep myself busy with many things, but uh, yeah, always, it, I think it's a balance. It's a balance, but you should... You should be as informed as possible. I think we have the power of creating things and putting things out in the world. And if they're well thought out and they're benefiting people in some way, that's great. The reality is sometimes you might not agree with what you are designing. That's the reality of the world. You might be working for a company that needs to send send this project out and you are a part of that. But uh, yeah, you do have a responsibility. Even as, as students too, I mean, you're shaping the interest that will take you, you know, down the next 10, 20 years. You can always change your path, but some of the things you're doing right now, and I can speak from experience, some of the things you're doing now in class or in your daily lives will be things that you will keep with you 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. scary, scary thought also. <laughs> yeah. Like sure. having, having solved some bad habits, for example, work-life balance. I hope I will not carry them with me many years later. Sure, it's up to you. Um, before we before we sort of conclude this this episode, uh, I have one one sort of question, and you can just answer with a yes or no because it's probably you you probably have unlimited amounts of NDAs that you signed. But are you aware? Because the the stuff that we read and the stuff that we're researching, we sort of get after it's it's come out and stuff like stuff that's not secret anymore. Uh, being in sort of your design research position and also your place in the, in the industry and in academia, um, have, have you had access to technologies yet that we don't know about and you can sort of already philosophize, how do you say, like sort of build sure. off of that sort of plan already the future? Yeah. Yeah. In many ways. Yes. Um, I can say one example that's not too far off, but I mean, the, the short answer is yes. And I, I love that because you that can help inform what's going on. As an example, uh, the brand new Oculus Quest Pro headset came, they released it a few weeks ago, but it won't be out in the market until next year. Well, next Friday, I'm meeting with a Gravity Sketch um, person that I work with. He's coming to the lab and we're testing the Oculus Quest Pro in the lab and already beginning to to develop new methods and new because I mean since they work so closely with Oculus, the manufacturer, 
they had access to the headsets way before they got released. And since we're, I mean, my research in the lab I'm leading is a key partner of Gravity Sketch in education. That means we also have access to it. So next Friday, we will be testing just the headset and some of the beta features that might make it next year to the actual headset. So those are examples. Wow. But um, I mean, you guys, depending on the industry you end up in, you will be a part of that because you are researching, you're creating next generation products, next generation interventions, and uh, you will be the ones designing them. I think that's also the beauty of being industrial designer because you can always see, for example, the, the companies give you the newest technology and you have to sh shape it to make it an actual product or service. So we mm -hmm. always see the, we can't talk about it, but we see the newest tech and the newest stuff. So the really, Right, but I, I the the sort of the reason I ask that is because um, it's one thing you know designing for a certain industry, but it's another thing being a design researcher. And in a way, you have to have more access to these things to be able to do your job, which is sort of why I asked that question. It, is it true that a lot of emerging technologies sort of I I heard this before in in other podcasts, but is it true that a lot of these emerging technologies sort of start off in the, um, how do you say, in the space industry, sort of like, and then work their way into um, sort of other industries. Is is that a pattern that's actually true, or is it just something I've heard? Space, as in like outer like, space. Yeah, yeah, outer like space travel. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a very common trend, and not only with so what 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 basically that means is many innovations in technology happen in very specialized places. Space exploration and the space race of the 1960s, 70s exponentially grew technology development in many areas. Other specialized industries, Formula One, many innovations mm -hmm. we see in cars today started in Formula One. Regenerative braking is one of those. Formula One cars have been doing that for a very long time. So what it means is usually human um, ingenuity, so places where it's at the highest, highest possible level of uh, complexity and specialization, usually innovations happen in those areas. For good or for bad, uh, wars, unfortunately, bring lots of devastation to human history, but they also bring lots of innovation in medicine, in technology. So there's always this double side of the story. There's always these paradoxes. But yes, usually lots and lots of innovations happen in very specific, very specialized places. Companies try to foster those environments. Actually, many times they invest in universities because of that, because this has... Universities usually have a very specific recipe almost where some ideas can be tested that are not necessarily feasible, but uh, it just goes back to analogies. So with space exploration, Velcro is one of the examples. Duct tape is another one that started with space exploration. One analogy, well, not analogy, a real story I love from space is uh, when, when the space race first started, NASA, well, they were having a huge, huge problem with astronauts not being able to write anything on space. Imagine they were doing a spacewalk. They had to keep a log of what they were checking, the instruments and they're on the outside. They could not figure out how to write anything down and keep track of that. That was a huge problem. They invested millions and millions and millions of dollars for, I don't know, a year or more than a year, testing every possible configuration 
And they came up with, because, you know, regular pens wouldn't work. There's no gravity, so the ink won't fall. It doesn't work in space. So they came up with this million-dollar pen, basically, that was supposed to work in space. And it kind of did. Guess what the Russians were doing? What would you say? What were the Russians doing? A pencil. A pencil. <laughs> yes. They spent millions of dollars when pencil was what they needed. So that's an example of really question things. Why, why always, you know, sometimes easy solutions are the right way. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> a, it's a full circle moment to what you said yeah. of innovation happening outside. Well, imagine, imagine just being at dinner or something and whipping out this pen that looks super normal and just saying, oh, no, this is something NASA developed in the 1960s. To help <laughs> it's like a special pen. <laughs> yeah, and they yeah billions and millions and millions of dollars when a pencil costs a few cents and that's what you needed. Wow. Um, we sort of like ending the the podcast on a on a lighter note, and sure. we had some very heavy <laughs> conversations, but um, not Black Mirror. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe depending on the movie. Yeah. Do you have a um? So we ask everyone this uh, to sort of come up with a book, a movie, and a song recommendation for the listeners. Are there any specific criteria for them? Any, anything. I literally recommended Star Wars. Uh, so it's... That's probably within my list. <laughs> it, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, I guess if we wanted to go off of the sci-fi dystopian sort of route, I would say the Matrix series is pretty interesting, just how it challenges the notion of questioning reality i don't know if you've seen it's it's from the 1930s or 40s uh modern times charlie chaplin uh, it's a movie about the kind of the industrial revolution with this scene where he yes is, uh, wait is it no but it's not the one where he's in a clockwork is it no like with a, with a bunch of uh there's mm -hmm. this famous scene where he goes through these different we uh how do you say um Chains now. It could be, yeah. Yes. Modern time. It's, yes. it's like it's about the industrial revolution and mm. uh, yeah, like factory and how everything became very repetitive oh, and yeah. his life. Like he, it's interesting because that was from a hundred years ago, but we're facing a very very similar uh, paradigm. Another one, just more outside of everything, is uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Shutter Island is with um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. This, uh, um... Which is really confusing because at yes. the end you always it's a things. mind twisting. Is movie. it Christopher Nolan? Like it the could diary? it could be yeah, and it's with the same guy from Hulk, Mark mm. Ruffalo. So it's a pretty cool movie, and it's it's yeah. not it's not like you know design or something, but it yeah. it helps it makes you question like your expectations. It's pretty good. Um, I think book books. Um, Especially, you know, many, many years ago, I would read lots of kind of future forward novels, so sci-fi. So I guess that's part of a theme. And, and many times in design, you kind of are interested in those kinds of things because that's what you want to do. So along those lines, I would say uh, A Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. Um, I grew up reading all the Jules Verne novels when I was a kid. If you want to be more dystopian, 1984, George Orwell. Oh, yeah. Which is pretty typical. High school. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I read it in high school too. Um, 
One I read recently more on the just professional side is called Happy Cities. It's a very good book on a new way of thinking about our cities. So Happy Cities, the name of the author was Charles Montgomery. So it's more of a like a lightheaded book on just we should be thinking about cities differently. But just to add, also a nice thing that you can, going back to industrial design, that you can take even maybe stuff from a book or a movie and you can apply it on your uh, on your work. So mm -hmm. that's exactly another nice aspect sort of industrial leisure, design. Leisure activities that you do in your private life find themselves back in your like professional life. Absolutely. It's such a lifestyle profession. That's why with portfolio, I kept saying that, you know, what is that one thing about you that you did? This podcast, I hope you talk about this in an interview in the future. This is great. I mean, who else, what other designer applying for a job will say, no, I've been hosting a podcast led, you know, a self-initiated podcast about design philosophy, just People sitting down and having coffee, you know, yeah. that's such a powerful thing. I'm pretty sure if you say that in an interview, people will, because remember, an interview is about, do we want to work with this person? Who, yeah, I mean, who would say, no, I, I hate sitting down and having coffee and talking about, you know, the future. Most people would, would want to hear that. Yeah. And it's, and it's also pretty interesting because you don't really think about it too much. Uh, right now, you know, we've we've had the opportunity to interview two professors at UC, and um, those are very interesting. You guys are very interesting individuals, but we're also planning on interviewing, you know, like students, and they're yeah, they might not have the certain insights that professors have, but I would argue almost just as interesting. You know, the conversation. Of course, everyone has their own experience. Just a question about Peter. Did he talk about when we sang karaoke in Tokyo or no? Did he? No, but you can. I am open to hearing this on mic. Right? <laughs> It's a whole hour long tangent. No, we we went to we did a mobility workshop in Tokyo some years ago. It was it was awesome, and we partnered with a group of students from uh, Chiba University and then oh. some UC students. So it was kind of a two way workshop in which. They came here for a week and a half and we had a whole thing and then we went over there. But uh, yeah, Japanese people love karaoke. So we did that a few times. They love, uh, what is it called? Ichiban, I think. So this meal experience where you order 20 different courses and you pass them along. Mm -hmm. But it, it was really cool. It was really cool, especially for, for the student perspective. It was so, such a great cultural exchange. So I would love to keep doing those kinds of things. But th that back then we did it with Peter. Because, yeah, he, I mean, I'm sure he spoke of his experience in Japan and he, he's married to, you know, a Japanese woman. So Japanese culture for him is super, yeah. super important. I think he also just loves karaoke because he, <laughs> he mentioned that he wants to have our class sing karaoke one night. For so. extra credit. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. He's, he's awesome. I love Peter. But yeah, we, we had a really good time over there hosting nice. that workshop. Um, sort of on the topic, uh, song recommendation. What a nice transition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, karaoke. Yeah, that was designed. That was designed. Man, I listened to so many things. I think just if we had to say like all time really good songs, you can't go wrong with Bohemian Rhapsody. I would mm -hmm. say Queen. Um, musically, like I play guitar a lot, so I pay attention a lot to instruments and things. Hotel California is another one that the instrumentation is just really good. Piano Man, Billy Joel is another one. But honestly, I listen to 
so, so, so many different things. You know, part of us being designers is being curious about everything, mm -hmm. like not to go on a tangent, but always finding hobbies to pick up. You, you can always, if you want to do something, you'll always make up the time. So that, mm -hmm. that's a big part of it. Like recently I started really trying to learn Italian again. Like I, I can understand it well, but I've never learned it. So it's one of those small things, you know, you, if you want to do something, you can find do, the time. Do you have Italian heritage? Because I know in uh, South America, a lot of people have some sort of... Italian Not that words. I know of specifically. My heritage is mostly Spanish from Spain, but uh, it's just a language I've always wanted to learn. And just in our profession, you know, being... I mean, you guys are an example. We are multicultural. We bring so many different aspects that are valuable, but the more you can communicate, that's something that uh, unfortunately in the U.S. is not very common, you know, for people to know more than one language. But uh, when they meet someone who knows more than one language, it's it's a really interesting experience for them, you know, truly. And I mean, you are right now taking a full semester in a country with a very different language than your own native language, which is my case too. So there's always, you know, so, so many little things that you can bring as someone from a different place. And that's something I try to do. The philosophy of everything I'm doing right now stems back to where I came from and things like that, like the story behind what I want to do in the lab. And so that, you know, your professional philosophy, you can always take it with you. So um, to talk about the, your favorite coffee experience. We have that's that's sort of like the last question last that we question. always ask on the podcast because the sort of subtopic is coffee. Coffee of favorite coffee experience. For example, for me, it was first time drinking at my aunt an espresso coffee, and this just just burned my mind because it was the first time enjoying, like a, <laughs> you know, an more high quality coffee than normal coffee. So, what kind of experience you had? With the the one th the one thought you get when you think about coffee, and that's a very very good question. I mean, I've had some really good ones. Honestly, I think my well, I'm I'm back home. I'm used to such good coffee that sometimes here, especially if you buy a regular coffee, it's just not the same. It's more watered down <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> experience so, the scent on everything. <laughs> Yeah, but I agree with you. Like the experience of a good, good coffee that you can enjoy is is important. Um, I can remember there's this really beautiful colonial town, very traditional town in Colombia called Villa de Leyva, and it's you know it's a very small town, stone streets, and they keep it they for the longest and they've kept it very much like that. It has a really awesome identity. There are the mountains surrounding everywhere. So the, the the theme you when you go there you feel transported hundreds and hundreds of years back in time. They have this beautiful city square uh, with like a fountain and everything, and they have one of the best cafes I've ever been to there. And you just buy this coffee and you sit out, out on the outside, and then you're out looking the mountains and you're seeing you know the people going on with their lives. But it's this really typical town, and uh, yeah, it's I think. Just like with many things in life, it's the coffee might be one part of that experience, but it's really everything. All the ingredients, the location, the scene, the time of day. Uh, we are very visual sensory people. So, for example, I perceive things very visually or I remember 
the song I was listening to when this was happening, the smell, you know, the sense of smell is so important. So I am very sensory like that. So for me, remembering an experience is, is just very complex. Um, I can also speak of, there's this really awesome national park on the coast, Colombia, that also had a very beautiful coffee. Actually, I think my screensaver of the iPad is there. So this was, oh wow, wow. this was actually taken with my phone. Yeah, it's a real, but uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful national park. And um, yeah, they had this cafe overlooking those cliffs like that. And yeah, it, for me at least, it's a much more complete experience when you remember some of those details. Maybe in your in your guys' case too, the people you were with, you you mentioned like you were at your family member's house at your aunt. Yeah. That probably had a lot to do with why you remember it so so much. So, well, thank you for again for for coming on the podcast, Alejandro. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, having these meaningful conversations as well. Also got some insight on industry and with what kind of projects you're working really. Yeah, and we also really had the privilege of 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 hearing some of the I, the stuff that you mentioned. Um, I think, sure, it, almost like an exclusive interview. Here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's. I mean, it's a, such a great initiative you you are doing and. I think, you know, just from my perspective, you're making so much out of this experience this semester, and that's really great. You'll remember many of the things you're doing now. And I would love to continue, you know, checking on your progress in the future, in the, just after the semester and after everything. Just, it's a very, it's very interesting seeing where people end up. But um, yeah, the people you keep interviewing, I'll probably find your podcast and keep following it to see. <laughs> what we can learn from your guests but uh it's such a cool idea and the fact that you decided to do this on your own is is really says a lot about you know your character and, and the things you value in life so yeah thanks it was a pleasure yeah thank you we we appreciate it and uh catch us uh next week for our next episode thank you for listening Good thing bye bye <laughs>